0: Well, welcome along to the program. I'm Justin Braley, your host for Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon. It's the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for a thoughtful discussion and reflection and uh, debate. So I hope you enjoy today's show. Just a reminder, right at the top of the show, and I'm doing this every week up till the tour, uh, that we have a great tour coming up from uh, William Lane Craig, who is probably the world's ...foremost defender of Christianity on an intellectual footing and um, he is coming over to the UK for 10 days from October the 17th to the 26th uh, for the Reasonable Faith Tour. Uh, Premier along with uh, Damaris and Be Thinking and UCCF are all involved in sponsoring that tour, hosting some of those debates and Premier are going to be kicking it off with a debate on the existence of God... At uh, Westminster Central Hall, Uh, William Lane Craig will be debating Stephen Law, atheist philosopher. And uh, I do hope if you're around, if you live within striking distance, you've booked your tickets and invited a friend along too. Uh, premier.org.uk slash craig. If you'd like to book in for this tour and indeed for many of the other events that you can find out about there as well, Uh, premier.org.uk slash craig. Uh, to, to get your tickets uh, don't forget there's a special apologetics day conference as well which will also feature as well as bill john lennox gary habermas and peter j williams a uh, different peter williams to the one we've got on today's program though uh, so let me introduce who we've got on unbelievable this afternoon You're unbelievable. well today on the program uh, peter s williams joins me in the studio alongside jeff crocker Um, Now let me tell you about these guys. Peter S. Williams is a Christian philosopher and apologist, author of many books including I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning which may be relevant to today's program but uh, you can find a whole host of books that he's written and I'll put some links to them with today's program. Uh, My atheist guest on today's program is Jeff Crocker, uh, a former Christian, now an atheist but he's concerned that maybe we lack a sense of meaning and value in uh, an atheistic framework. How do we recover a sense of that? And uh, he's got a new book out called *An Enlightened Philosophy*. So he's going to tell us all about that, as we asked today on the quest on the question: Can an atheist believe in meaning? Hope you enjoy today's program. Welcome, gentlemen, both. Great to have you both with me here. Um, now, Jeff. Thank you for coming in. You're new to the program, so um, uh, it'd be good to get a little bit of a sense of background from you, and then we'll come to you, Peter, for for your background, as you haven't come on for quite a while, and uh, people may be interested to to hear where you're coming from. But Jeff, thank you for coming in today. Um, you were a Christian, Jeff. Tell us
1: um, what happened. Yeah, well, thanks for your invitation to join you, Justin and Peter. Uh, I grew up in Derby, a grey industrial Midlands town, and uh, really enjoyed my school days there. And during that period of time. Um, I joined an evangelical Anglican church and I became at an early age convinced of a Christian understanding. And I guess it was on two bases, one that I did consider that the creation as I then saw it um, required a designer. I thought the random explanation wasn't very credible. Um, And secondly, I thought that humanity was certainly faltered and needed some salvation, some forgiveness, some salve in its understanding. So those might sound rather generic uh, motives or first thoughts for a 14-year-old. But by the age of 15, I'd read all that John Stott and uh, various others had written and became an evangelical Christian. Um, So that journey continued for mm, a large, large number of years, really, 20, 30 years, and I was more and more involved in church life, the majority of it in uh, charismatic Anglican church life, but also extensively abroad. And I spoke at church conferences in various countries, in Europe, in the States, in Africa, where I worked a lot in Ghana, Um, in South Africa prior to um, the apartheid regime coming down, working with the black churches there, Um, in Russia uh, prior and since um, the communist regime, in East Germany working a lot with the Lutheran church there prior to the reform movement overthrowing Hanukkah's regime. So quite a lot of intensive involvement. And I published a Bible study guide called Living Word, which was used in home groups in lots of churches, and that went out in several languages too. So I had a pretty heavy commitment and involvement mm. of a large core yes, of this my was, life. This was no dalliance.
0: This was a, a firmly committed life you know, yes, involved yes, in, in, gospel, in the gospel. Yes
1: well well in in Christian interpretations, yes, mm-hmm. um, so I then came to a crisis in life. The crisis was engendered both behaviorally and in terms of belief. The behavioral one was uh, went through a very sad part of church life, which uh, knew so much conflict, people were tearing each other apart, so you know grace got um, thrown out of church life, and behavior became a contradiction of grace rather than an expression of it. Um, And those things, if they continue long enough, uh, can seriously erode somebody's position. Because if the church isn't the incarnation of the grace it believes in, um, it hardly has any standing. But secondly, in terms of belief, some of the fundamental beliefs that I had had held to suddenly began to unravel. People often speak of the belief in hell as being the one that unravels first Mm. because they find it non-credible. Uh, For me, actually, it was the concept of forgiveness as understood by evangelical Christianity. And the more I pondered it, the idea that God forgave because he beat up somebody else, i.e. his son, um, seemed to me a a zero-sum concept of forgiveness. So when I forgive or when you forgive or when Peter forgives, we don't go and beat up somebody else in order to forgive the first person. Mm. So the interpretation suddenly seemed extremely lacking to me and actually a very defective concept of forgiveness. And I wanted to find a much higher concept of forgiveness that didn't involve taking it out on somebody else. So it led me to see, feel Mm. that the interpretations that I had uh, held dear were actually rather lacking. I was working in Russia for about 20 years in an atheist society, and I saw huge values amongst people working in Soviet industry, the head of the coal industry was a personal friend of mine, and so on. And I saw here was a society without any creed, without any data knowledge even of the Christian claims, and um, but yet a society with great personal and interpersonal values. So all of those things shifted me to seek... A fresh interpretation, having lost that evangelical definition of faith, Mm. which I am pretty critical about in the middle section of my book. Well, it's a fascinating journey, and um, it gave birth to the
0: book uh, we're going to be looking at today, An Enlightened Philosophy, that you've written. We'll come back to that in a moment's time. Peter... Williams, uh, Peter S. Williams, I should say, joins me today. Peter, you're a Christian philosopher and apologist. Um, Very interesting story we just Mm. heard there from Jeff. Um, What's your story and and, uh, does it it interact in any way with Jeff?
2: Much more prosaic, uh, I think, really. Um, uh, Again, I was brought up in a a Christian uh, context, um, but I uh, never had a time where I moved away from that. Um, mine was, I, I guess, a process as, as I gradually grew older and came to understand more of what was being being claimed and promulgated, asking, do I really believe this is true and do I believe it for myself mm. rather than simply because my my family, my immediate sort of cultural situation um, says this is the, the done thing. And uh, it was just the fact that for me every time I sort of asked those questions and went through that sort of mind and soul searching I, I always answered in the positive mm. that yes I did think this was true and, and yes I, I was committed to it for myself mm. rather than simply uh, for cultural uh, reasons so um, yeah. Th- that's I mean you've got a book actually as uh, Jeff mentioned
0: there this issue theological issue with um, the idea of forgiveness mm. um, and the penal atonement
2: I have a lot of sympathy with your um, problems with some of the interpretations of that particular uh, the doctrine of atonement uh, uh, within certain circles and um, yeah I, I can I can empathize very much with some of the difficulties that certain ways of expressing uh, what 's going on in the in the atonement um, have for, for people. We're going to talk
0: about that next week, actually. And if you're tuning in thinking that we were going to be talking about that this week, because I did advertise it last week, uh, um, Peter's new book, Understanding Jesus, we're going to actually leave that off for one week and and come back next week for a a fascinating Mm -hmm. discussion on the person of Jesus and some sceptics coming on the phone to ask questions of Peter about Jesus and and his new book. Um, But today we're we're focusing on, Jeff, your book and... uh, you dis- well the book, the book says that y- you believe faith can be interpreted um, a kind of reevaluated um that it can be interpreted as myth and that this in some sense is a better way of seeing faith um, and it also gives us meaning and, and value that that perhaps is lacking otherwise in, a, in an atheistic framework Do you want to sort of give us the, the core thesis of the book as it were.
1: Yeah, so the core thesis is looking at the present conflict and confrontation between doctrinally expressed Christianity as represented by the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches too. Um, and militant atheism as expressed by Richard Dawkins and other people uh, writing as he does. This has become a pretty militant confrontation. So, I mean, it wasn't long ago that one side was taking out adverts on buses saying there is no God, and the other side was taking out adverts on the other side of the bus saying there is a God. So, you know, apart from confusing the buses, um, it, the, the confrontation is a stalemate. So, having found myself dumped into the wider sea of, um, atheist thinking and it called clearly in western europe it is the majority perspective it doesn't make it right necessarily but there are a lot of people in this particular park in life having found myself there trying to look at this conflict and seeing if there were other interpretations that brought us um, greater uh, mutuality greater understanding and some synthesis so the critique is um, doctrinal christianity Um, has a number of weaknesses, which I've just alluded to one about forgiveness, but a number of others too that uh, I've critiqued and others have critiqued. And the existence of God is critiquable as well from an atheist position. But the atheist position um, has its weakness too. It has its weakness, A, that it's extremely fundamentalist, so it's extremely difficult to debate detail within this uh, militant atheist position, even if you yourself are an atheist. Um, The slightest deviance from the Darwin. Uh, Mendel uh, W.D. Hamilton perspective on biology, for example, um, isn't met with any readiness to debate at all. So there is a very fundamentalist mindset within uh, militant atheism. But the biggest critique I have is that it uh, has no account of the metaphysical element of human life. It is essentially reductionist, and it it claims itself to be reductionist, i.e. everything is only physical. Mm. Well, everything may only be physical, but nevertheless, this physical does generate a metaphysical existence. Uh, We do have an intellectual uh, element to our being. We have a spiritual element to our being. We have an emotional element to our being. And all of that metaphysical element of the human experience finds no account um, in militant atheism. Um, So, therefore, the challenge was, I guess, or the suggestion, whichever way you want to put it, is for militant atheism to recognize the metaphysical in, in humanity even if it's only a transient metaphysical whilst we're alive. In other words, if there is no eternal life, mm. there is still a spiritual life while we are alive. And for the church to look at um, myth as a more powerful interpretation than doctrine. So having critiqued doctrine quite extensively in the book, I then try to assert the superior interpretation, as you say, of myth. Now, myth, not with a small m, meaning, something that's trivial and not true and the Father Christmas story, but myth as being a strong social narrative, and my argument is that religion, at its best, does contribute uh, wonderful, uh, strong, poetic meta-narratives um, in human society. And I take several examples in the book. So I take the example of Cain and Abel, well-known stories certainly to Bible readers, um, in the Book of Genesis. And I say, well, you can't really weave a doctrine around the Cable and Ables, Cain and Abel story. There is no doctrine. Believing in it literally or not doesn't really make any difference. But the significance of this story in terms of sibling rivalry, in terms of jealousy that leads to hatred, that leads to murder, and in terms of the divine view that there is another w- another way of behaving, i.e., as God says to Cain, if you do well, you will also be accepted. These are wonderful myths with a capital M. Um, Sadly, many very well-educated atheists know none of them at all because um, they are biblically illiterate. Um, The church is peddling its doctrinal interpretations and I claim missing the the goal, missing the meaning. Um, There is a meaning there but it is more in terms of myth than in terms of doctrine and I try to explore it and I try to show in the book that there is actually a synthesis. For example, if you take the theme of justice, um, a lot of the mentions of words like righteousness in the Bible are equally interpretable as justice Um, and therefore a much greater concern for the agenda of justice comes out than comes out of doctrinal Christianity Um, and it does square with the atheist concern, spiritual atheist concern equally for justice so there's a synthesis I suggest. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Let's get
0: into the discussion now and if you'd like to uh, give your thoughts on today's discussion I do invite your emails, that's unbelievable. At premier.org.uk. You can also uh, interact via the Facebook and Twitter accounts, and uh, the links to those are both from the uh, unbelievable webpage at premier.org.uk unbelievable we're talking uh, today can an atheist believe in meaning and we're hearing jeff crocker who former christian now an atheist believes that uh, there is a way of synthesizing religion uh, to be interpreted as myth that helps in that regard uh, peter s williams though christian philosopher and apologist uh, is going to be in conversation with jeff today on the program as he looks at uh, what he claims in the book and and whether atheists can believe in meaning this is unbelievable with me justin Briley.
1: Unbelievable with Justin Briarley.
0: Well, Peter, uh, may I come back to you? Hearing what Jeff has had to say there, I'm sure, as you've already said, you can sympathise with aspects of his story and, and the journey he took. But uh, do you sympathise with the way he then uh, interprets religion as, as a myth, as a way of kind of giving a sort of sense of value and grounding that, that is actually better than doctrines and, uh, or, or indeed the other sort of... Uh, side of the coin dogmatic atheism
2: well I certainly have elements of of sympathy with with what you're saying Um, I'm minded of C.S. Lewis's phrase about um, the incarnation being myth become fact um, uh, without losing any of its uh, mythological elements in its large M sense of the meaning but differing from other uh, myths in that it was also something that actually happened on the Christian view um, so one could certainly take uh, useful uh, meanings out of stories whether or not one believes that they're true but if one believes that they're true they can have uh, additional meanings and implications uh, vis-a-vis someone who doesn't believe that they're actually, actually true I think um, so the, the 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 kind of the prior question that the, your your thesis seems to be founded upon is, is of course that that Christianity and religious viewpoints are actually metaphysically false, and then you go on to to say, but let's not chuck the baby out with the bathwater in terms of the sort of meanings uh, and uh, sense of things that are useful for how we live our life that we can nevertheless get out of the kind of stories that are told in in religious texts is that am I reading you?
1: Yeah, I mean, in one sense, I'm not trying to dissuade the doctrinally believing Christian necessarily. I mean, my greater concern is for those in the atheist community uh, to persuade that perspective that there is a spirituality available mm. and that religion can contribute to that spirituality so um, although I do state the reasons in the book and in some parts quite assertively for the atheist position mm. um, I certainly think that church in mission needs to understand um, why the atheist uh, community has got to where it has mm. far more than it ever seems to do so um, so the church seems not to amend its doctrinal message its gospel of salvation as the evangelicals mm. interpret it at all, um, and the atheist see is out there, and comprehending there's actually very little engagement. Mm. But I would, whilst I therefore, are uh, he, you he's yeah? saying that that
0: for for the, for the Christian Church to you know really engage with atheists, we have to basically
1: say there's no God, and mm. um, we are because it sounds a bit no. like you're saying. Uh, no, no, l- no, no. L- I'm <laughs> not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that it needs to have greater understanding of the people who do feel that and why they've got there and how they've got there and I find very little um, engagement with that understanding um, in the Christian church so you know I go along to a very famous evangelical church close to where I live in Bristol extremely nice people there but the message um, bears no relevance to the journey of the majority of the population of the city and how they've got to the atheist conclusion they've currently got to it's kind of two parallel lines that will never meet so I'm just arguing for a greater Mm. empathy um, from the church towards the atheist position but coming back to what Peter says I mean the the challenge I suppose from my side and I put it with respect but it is still a challenge Mm. saying well what does the literal um, part of the belief add so for example if we take the story which I take in the book of Christ throwing the market out of the temple Mm. in my view whether I believe that literally or not doesn't add any value to it because as a story um, it has huge value in my view of the role of the market in human life that there may be areas that are holy to humanity that should not be subject to profit and price and market trading love would be one of them friendship would be another we could argue that education and health are other ones now as therefore as myth a story it has huge meaning and i actually think that's fair um, in the context of christ's own teachings which were hugely parable and story um so literalism, I'm arguing, doesn't add anything. And in many cases, as in the Hindu religion of uh, Ram and Sita, the myth of Ram rescuing Sita is a wonderful myth of somebody going to any lengths to rescue the one that they love. But the, the, the literalizing of it by putting two dolls in a little doll's house and going worshiping them and putting bits of orange in front of them, frankly, in my view, trivializes it rather than uh, realizing its greatness. Mm.
2: Splendour. Well, of course, if you have the Christian understanding of Jesus, then um, something like Jesus um, casting out the, the, the from the market in the temple and so on, you would also see as actually giving you a window into an expression of the character of God. That it, it adds to your information about uh, the Creator and His uh, intent to, to actually relate to us. Um, So it's not that you don't get any truths out of it if you don't think that it's real, but if you do think it's real, you do think that it is giving you actual information about about a reality that if you don't think the story is true and you don't think Jesus, is who Christians think he was, then obviously you don't think that that story is giving you information about the nature of ultimate reality. So I think there is Mm. a a difference between the the two Mm. perspectives.
1: But, you know, when Jesus uh, speaks and he says... Uh, there was a woman who lost a coin, for example. Mm. Now, are we to believe that there really was a woman who well, lost a coin? Absolutely um, not. I mean, well, see, yes, teaching not. But, apparel, but, it's, but a fair, it's a fair interpretation for some, that maybe yeah. there was a woman who lost a coin.
2: Yeah.
1: But, but is it important?
2: Well, well, there, because uh, we, we're both agreeing that the correct interpretation of that story is that it's a parable that doesn't rest upon the, the literal truth of it. But there are plenty of things that the whether or not the sto- you think the story is true or not, the correct interpretation of what's being claimed by Jesus, by the original disciples, by Christians, is that the event is actually true and tells us something real about ultimate reality. So I don't think there's a, a, a sort of strict analogy between uh, those uh, two I, things I that you can draw there. M-
0: my question as well is, w- w- why um, choose Christianity? I mean, on, on your basis, isn't any story, whether it be uh, Harry Potter or, or whatever, Equally valid for getting good moral precepts and ways of looking at the world from. I mean, is Absolutely, it just is yes. it just because Christianity is, as it were, still has cultural currency that that you feel it should be reinterpreted in this way?
1: Oh, no, I don't think it has any um, prime place. I think there is a lot of other literature and a lot of other spiritualities that generate um, great moral truths. And I quote several in in the book. So some of the great films, some of the great novels, Tolstoy's novels, um, current novelists, um, so on and so forth. Um, There there are great sources of value and virtue. I quote, for example, um, Christopher Rice's work on T.S. Eliot, uh, where he's talking about prejudice in T.S. Eliot. And I think his, um, his work on prejudice is frankly more morally inspiring than anything in the Bible that I can find on prejudice. In fact, one could argue the Bible is hugely prejudiced. It's prejudiced in favor of some and against others. Uh, so there isn't as strong a message um, challenging prejudice in the Bible as there is in uh, sorry Christopher Ricks or Christopher Ricks' interpretation of T. S. Eliot. So there's a lot of literature out there. All I'm saying is that the great religious literatures, uh, which have been discarded by the current militant atheist society, um, should not be so discarded. They should be um, examined. They should be taken with an open mind because they do have great virtue. So I'm elevating virtue, if you like, mm. rather than mm. doctrine, because mm. I agree with what Peter's saying. You know, if one does accept the literal nature of the Incarnation, Um, but not the literal nature nature of the parable story. There is, of course, a spectrum there. What about Jonah and the whale, you see? I mean, I've been at Christian conventions where there have been furious arguments between (laughs) these who think it's a parable and those who stormed out because it must be believed literally. Mm -hmm. So there is a spectrum here as as to where it is. But the, the belief that these things are literal only helps by adding this spiral of doctrinal interpretations, the house of doctrine. And as far as I can see, the house of doctrine
2: leads us nowhere. Well, here I think is where I would want to start digging into the more fundamental philosophical issues, because um, if you are taking a, uh, a metaphysically naturalistic worldview and then saying, but we can have a spiritual life, we can have meanings, we can have values that we that we value on on top of that without um, having to believe in some kind of, of real God or whatever um, well there that of course raises basic metaphysical issues, like can there be such a thing as as objective meanings, values, purposes in the absence of a, a theistic Uh, reality does are those atheists like Nietzsche and Sartre and so on who would argue given that there's no God then there really is no given purpose for life no real meaning for life no objective uh, difference between what we happen to value and what some other culture happens to value we're just different and it's not that one of us is actually wrong about the objective facts of the moral matter Uh, are those kind of atheists right about that because from from my perspective, I I kind of think that they are um, consistently working out the the consequences of a naturalistic worldview. So I, I'm kind of drawn to them because of that, mm. just as much as I'm drawn to you because you're saying no. But we we don't want to chuck the baby out with the bathwater. We are spiritual beings. We we do value things. We do need a sense of purpose and so on. But I think my question is yes, but don't we don't what we actually need is a sense of objective, real purpose. Rather than just a sense of what's meaningful for us, and yeah.
0: we'll—I'll get to your answer in a moment because we're, we're coming up to a break, and uh, I'm sure you're you're ready to to to, to respond to to Peter's uh, question. We're getting into the the meat of the subject now. Yeah. as we ask, can an atheist believe in meaning? Um, uh, Jeff Crocker says. Uh, well, atheists uh, of the stripes of, you know, Richard Dawkins, etc., shouldn't chuck out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to religion. Uh, we can reinterpret religion as myth to give uh, a sense of meaning. Um, and you've been talking about spiritual atheism, which which to me sounds like a contradiction in terms and possibly to many people would, but we'll, we'll get you to expand on that as well in a moment, Jeff. Um, so you're listening to Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. My guests today, Peter S. Williams and Jeff Crocker. As we ask, can an atheist, believe in meaning.
2: You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio.
0: I'm Justin Briley, your host through till four o'clock this afternoon. Welcome along this Saturday afternoon and uh, with me here in the studio... Uh, Peter S. Williams and Jeff Crocker. Um, Peter S. Williams is a Christian philosopher and apologist, author of many books, uh, including perhaps pertinently to today's discussion, I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning. Jeff is a former Christian, now an atheist, but he's concerned that um, atheism can entail a lack of meaning and value on a certain view of it, and, and that we do need to be looking to religion as providing potentially a sort of a mythical aspect that allows us to draw out meaning from the stories and uh, the, the, the sort of traditions of religion well um, we're looking at that today uh, Jeff has written down his thoughts in a book called An Enlightened Philosophy and uh, I'll put a link to that with the uh, podcast of this programme which you can find at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable um, gentlemen so just uh, as we sort of concluded that last section there Jeff Peter Williams was asking um, well, well, ultimately, you know, Nietzsche, Sartre, some of these um, great atheist philosophers sort of traced the ultimate conclusion of there being no ultimate God, no ultimate sort of transcendent reality as being that, well, there is therefore no uh, objective purpose, no objective values, no objective meaning in the world. Um, uh, and, I mean, the question that, that struck me as as Peter was explaining that was that it, it sometimes it feels to me a bit like In this, you're trying to rescue something of what you did have as a Christian and sort of transplant it into an atheistic framework, where it perhaps sits a little uncomfortably. Because at the end of the day, um, if, if, if as an atheist, I mean, would you describe yourself as a materialist atheist that you actually believe there is nothing ultimately at an ultimate level than physical matter and processes? I mean, if that is true, then how how do we get from that to um, you know, value, meaning and all, and all the rest of it. It, it seems to me that you, you need an extra level of reality to, uh, to make
1: sense of those kinds of concepts. Well, um, I think that um, an intellectual position always retains doubt and should always retain doubt. So I have doubt in my own intellectual position But as far as my hypothesis is at the moment, it's close to an atheist position which regards the world as material. Your question, therefore, as to how does one generate a metaphysical from the physical, Mm. my answer to that is that we simply don't know. Uh, Neuroscience hasn't got us to that point yet of being able to understand, for example, even how an idea is formed in the human brain, how it's lodged in that brain, how it can be transmitted uh, through my mouth by verbal uh, means to your ear, Uh, go into your brain and whether you agree with the idea or not, you're free to do either the idea is then replicated Mm. or listeners to your show um, now, I don't know how many listeners you have but perhaps tens of thousands of people get the idea replicated in their mind the idea is multiplied tens of thousands of times without any increase in physical mass in the universe so therefore the challenge to the ultra ultra materialist is how do you account for Mm. that metaphysical increase of meaning and value without any increase in mass. Um, Now, it could be that the neurons reconfigure in a certain way, but the answer is at the moment we simply don't know. So we have to live um, accepting a huge area of ignorance. Now, that doesn't mean that we should let the ignorance continue forever, and neurological research is extremely welcome, but in our present position we don't know. So coming therefore to the question of um, ultimates, of absolutes, of objective existences, um, I fully accept the challenge that the position that I'm currently in And I have to add that a lot of people who are atheists but who ascribe to any value at all are in, and there are a lot of people in that position, um, has no absolute ultimate objective justification for it. Um, Where does it therefore come from is, as you say, um, a huge question. Um, I don't mind answering that question by saying I don't know, because actually that is the current truth. I don't know. Um, But... Let me put some alternative challenges. That is, how absolute are the values that come out of religion? So, for example, you can take the issue of capital punishment – where religious views differ greatly. In the United States, um, they continue capital punishment and simply think that it's written into the Bible as part of God's law. Um, In Europe, we've thrown out capital punishment, in my view, correctly, not only for pragmatic reasons that you could end up executing somebody who's innocent, but also for humane reasons that society should behave better um, than somebody who has killed somebody else. If it's applying a higher virtue, then it should live that higher virtue. So the religious position um, can be unclear about something as, as, as important as capital punishment, as indeed it, it is on many other moral issues. Uh, so it doesn't give us any absolute. Um, and people change their position during the course of their lives, even as believing Christians, um, whether women should be ordained and so on. What is the acceptability of homosexual lifestyles within Christian understanding? These are great questions, but there is no absolute absolute. Answer to them, and I think the there is a kind of urge within the Christian community to to establish an absolute there seems to be a sort of frenzied need to have absolute objective statements about everything. Um, I question whether they really add anything because um, Again, if you come to some of the great Christ statements, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, where the virtues are celebrated, um, these this isn't based upon anything um, absolute. It's based upon a statement of the intrinsic attraction of the virtues of justice, of the virtues of mercy, of the virtues of, of love themselves. Now, when one starts to look at the universe and say, how much is objective and where is their purpose? I would argue that in the constellation of the physical, I see no purpose at all. I don't see any purpose in the way that the universe is expanding or the planets are rotating or everything's spinning or the various particles are floating through space or the animal species live. I don't see a purpose written in it um, other than mere survival. Um, Therefore, um, I think that We are conning ourselves if we're looking for an external statement of purpose, that the real statement of purpose is generated from within the the human. And again, I would claim that this does ring true with um, certain of Christ's philosophies. For example, he said that it's out of somebody's inner being that flow rivers of living water. It isn't that they're um, imposed from outside. They're they're generated from within the person. Well, let's – Peter, so uh, uh, essentially – Meaning
0: is comes from within. We don't. There is no sort of outside standard by which we sort of, sort of can can grasp onto, and um, the universe itself doesn't display a, a sense of purpose or um, direction in that
2: sense. Yeah, well, I think that's a. I mean, in a sense, that's a clear articulation from Jeff of of what I would take to be the standard naturalistic worldview, implying that there is no objective purpose and there are no absolute values. I think this thing of of going from, well, because people disagree about certain matters, therefore there's no fact of the matter, there's only the disagreement, Uh, I I think that's a a problematical move, just because there's no agreement upon what the facts of the matter are doesn't entail that there are no facts of the matter. Um, On a naturalistic worldview, it seems to me that all you have is the disagreeing opinions... And then you said no, there are there are no absolutes. So, of course, both both Christians, religious people, and non-religious people disagree about lots of moral questions. But at least um, on a religious view, there are facts of the matter, one way or another. To be possibly discovered, which makes ethical debate sort of serious and worthwhile, rather than simply an exchange of, of opinions. And also, what about what about clear cases? What about the Holocaust was evil, or torturing a small child just for the fun of it is wrong? Um, it would seem to me that on the naturalistic view, just as much as on any issue where people are disagreeing. So for that kind of clear, surely, case where our intuitions want to say, no, that really is true, uh, and we, even across our metaphysical divide, would want to agree on that, I'm sure, um, that, you're, that, that a naturalistic worldview doesn't give you any way of, of claiming that that is a fact. It, it's just an opinion just as much as any of the opinions that are involved in those matters that people disagree about.
1: Yeah, well I follow you a lot of the way with that but you see I think that if one says the Holocaust is evil as you do and I do um, and if you say torturing a child is evil which you do and I do um, then how you get to that position actually doesn't terribly matter because we both agree what we would do in those situations we agree on the moral imperative Uh, What do you do with someone who disagrees with you? What
0: about Hitler? Upon what basis do you tell him that he's wrong and he should desist from... Upon a simple
1: basis of arbitrary choice so it's just an
0: arbitrary choice on your part to yeah. tell Hitler.
1: That, so there isn't actually any meaning behind it, ultimately? Or there is a meaning behind it, ultimately. There is a meaning of the value of um, human life and of human values. Because, you see, um, one could say to the, to the theist, OK, you object to the, to the Holocaust because you believe in God, and God sets these values. Um, but what if your God doesn't exist? Do you then not condemn the Holocaust? And indeed, this God who does exist, what did he do about the Holocaust? Um, He did nothing. So the people went into the valley of the shadow of death, um, and he didn't do anything about it. Now, you know, he did nothing about the bubonic plague. So here is the God who's the father of us all, who cares, and all the rest of it. Um, But when humanity hits the bubonic plague and a third of the European population die in severe agony... God makes no move. The only salvation for that comes through the Enlightenment, through medical science, which discovers what the bacteria is and counter it. So, so our current position owes far more to the Enlightenment and technology than it does to this God who's gone AWOL.
2: But then, of course, if, if you're raising a, a classical problem of evil against the existence of God there and saying... Um, God would would be objectively wrong not to intervene on these occasions. Uh, he didn't, therefore God can't be good or can't exist or something like this. That very argument, of course, is presupposing this notion of objective wrongness, which on a metaphysically naturalistic view that there is no such thing as only an opinion that you happen to have and that other people may disagree with, um, but that has no sort of grounding in reality, as it were. Uh, whereas, at least if you're saying no, I think there are some things that are objectively right and wrong. A coherent way of explaining that is to root them in the in the character of uh, a transcendent personal being uh, who grounds our moral obligations and prescriptions, mm-hmm. such as such as we we know. Well, about. It doesn't
1: ground them in a reliable way. That's the trouble I have. So there is absolute, uh, there's absolutely no absolute about his statement, as we've already agreed about various important moral issues. So the question as to what is objective in this universe, it seems to me it's very difficult once you get outside the physical. So the physical can be seen to be objective, but even Newtonian gravitational force... It clearly uh, obeys the mathematics of Newton's formulae, but how is it generated? We just don't know. It is a metaphysical. Um, uh, Maxwell's electromagnetic field, the same. Probability, the same. There seems to be an irreducible stochastic element in this world that generates probability distributions. We don't know how that happens. So there are a lot of things in the metaphysical world that we don't know. And the value and virtue... um, join those as far as I can see because I you're right, I mean I don't have a, a source explanation yeah. for them, um, I claim that you don't either because your source explanation is a God who um, one has to prove his existence first of all and that's very tricky it isn't the point th- secondly this, this doesn't, doesn't this the argument that, that Peter's
0: been employing is an argument for God it's, a classic it, it, argument, it's, yeah. it's not presupposing um, the existence of God in order for the argument to work, it's saying If you want your objective values, that Mm. the Holocaust is evil and that torturing a child for fun is wrong, um, then the only way of grounding that, of being able to explain that, is in a transcendent realm of values, which simply doesn't exist on an atheistic worldview if, if all there is is matter. It has to be grounded in something. Why, why does it have to
1: be grounded in anything? Be, because, well, Peter...
2: Well, I mean, there are a number it's of different arguments in, itself, in this field, see. but, for mm-hmm. example, if you say, let's let's think about the nature of what, a, what an objective moral value would be, hmm. um, what type of, of thing is it? Um, well, it wouldn't seem to be a material thing, so it must be an immaterial thing of some kind. Um, like like an idea or, or a concept would be on a dualist view of mind, um, so where do you lodge it in reality? Certainly not within a metaphysically uh, materialistic reality. there is no uh, transcendent mind to uh, to put it in. Um, moral values seem to be things that we are obligated to to obey, and yet how can something anything non personal or purely physical or anything non personal um, obligate? Uh, Behavior or prescribe uh, behaviour, so that the obligatory, prescriptive, ideal kind of nature of what an objective moral value would be, were it to exist, would seem to imply that its best explanation would be in terms of something transcendent, non-physical, personal, um, prescribing, obligating, um, in respect to us.
1: You're you're speculating an explanation, and I don't object to that, but I would say it is a speculative explanation. And my challenge to you would be... um, That when you yourself um, we've just been discussing together various moral issues, Mm. you're actually not saying, um, okay I am against the holocaust. Why are you against the holocaust? Because God says I should be against the holocaust. Why am I in favour of an inclusive attitude to homosexuals? I don't know whether you are, but if you are um, is that because God says so? Well, Because there are other people who are saying God Mm. says the very opposite. So in that sense, um, I would challenge that you're actually not calling upon this objective um, God in mm. order to express your moral persuasions and if you are there are others who take exactly the opposite view from the same objective God so where's the objectivity gone
2: well my argument that here the moral argument that I'm making is, is not in terms of how do I arrive at, at my knowledge of moral truths mm. it is rather saying given my knowledge of at least some clear moral truths that, that seem to be objective. If you take those as being true objective moral truths, how do you explain their existence? What type of realities are there? And what is the best metaphysical explanation of there being such realities? So I'm not saying I, I know that the Holocaust was wrong because God's told me. Or the Bible says don't don't murder. and I believe it's the word of God, or anything like that. I'm saying it seems intuitively obvious to me that the Holocaust was wrong. That that's an objective moral fact. Okay, what do I do with the fact that I that I see there are objective moral facts? What what metaphysical view of reality makes such a, a thing as an objective moral fact that obligates and prescribes my behaviour at home? It certainly doesn't seem to be a metaphysically naturalistic, materialistic world view. Uh, and certainly seems to be much more coherent on a, on a theistic worldview. Well, uh, but I'd say that
1: you're, tr- you're using enlightenment rationality to want to get an explanation of spirituality, and I think that um, evangelical doctrine has done that all the way through. You know, there's if that, therefore this, all mm. of sin that comes short of the glory of God, Christ died to forgive sins, therefore this. It's all QED. It's like a little mathematical formula, and it's, en- it's enlightenment obj- rationality, falsely applied to spirituality and when it comes down to it if you and I um, have an agenda for social justice for example today and if we share that agenda as I suspect by sort of feel somehow we probably do um, the fact that you say you get it from God and the fact that I say I've got it but I don't know where I got it from (laughs) doesn't actually make a lot of difference to the objective of pursuing social justice because uh, you're saying you got it from God or from a An external objective source um i I respect that i don't want to actually attack that in you um i'm i am saying i think that it's subject to question and therefore there's a weakness in your foundation as there is a weakness in my foundation because i'm admitting i don't know where i get it from but it's humanly attractive and i want to vote for it so the divine the divine is endogenous for me but there is a divine Um, so grace and kindness and justice um and, André Comte Sponville, a French philosopher, I'm a great fan of his. He produced a beautiful book called um, uh, A Short Treatise on the Classical Virtues. And he goes through 18 such virtues and celebrates them. And But he is a totally atheist and, in fact, a deterministic atheist. Uh, nevertheless, I can celebrate those virtues and live by them, even though I don't know where they come from. You celebrate them because you say you know where they came from. Well...
2: I, I respect your yeah. certainty, well, more but of, I, I agree I, with you about the reality. Yeah, I, 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 and again, there's a large overlap here, but it's more a case of I, I'm saying I, I like you, accept them, and I think mm. I know where they come from, rather than I accept them because I think of of where they come from. I, I certainly plead guilty to trying to mount a uh, a rational argument mm. uh, for God from from morality. Um, but uh, in terms of um, you know the, the the dialectic of of a debate on you know which worldview is true, I, I don't think it will do simply to say, oh, what what you're doing there is arguing about something spiritual, and by definition, spiritual things can't be argued about. So I'm not going to I interact know, with I'm, the I'm, I'm, you not know? That. I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, I
1: mean, and what, what sense I'm happy to well, engage in that. I, I've been interested
0: in your definition of spiritual because if if on an ultimate level you are a materialist, as, as you seem to have said, Jeff. um, what what is this spiritual that you refer to? Is it is it just these ideas that can't be explained um, and therefore come under the category of spiritual within an atheist framework? Um, well,
1: w- well, yes, I mean, but what what is non-physical? So what is intellectual? What is emotional? What is spiritual? Where are feelings? Where are values? Mm-hmm. Uh, where are points of view? Where are experiences? Um, in other words, there. All I'm arguing is that there is a huge metaphysical dimension to being a human being and to being a human society. Is it, is it purely I mean, something that arises that. from yeah. – is it purely dependent upon
0: the material, though? I mean, well, I'm, I'm assuming you're not saying there's a physical realm and a spiritual realm because, no, for me, not, that, no, that's not, not atheism. Is no, it? no, no, that's, no. no. That, uh, that is,
1: well, well, I'm not necessarily wanting to ascribe to some sort of standard atheism. Um, Mm. I, you know, the great debate that um, Roy Peacock followed in his uh, wonderful book called Flesh in the Age of Reason follows from uh, David Hume onwards the question as to whether there is a separate soul. Mm. So Hume's response was that there is not a separate soul um, because he then, but he then concluded that this is a question of eternity, that there isn't a separate metaphysical that will succeed, um, our, survive at the death of our physical being. Well, okay, I, I actually do assent to that because I don't actually think that the ideas I have in, lodged in my mind now, unless I write them down on paper, which is why I wrote the book, um, or the feelings I have now are going to survive my physical existence. That's what I happen to think. I don't know, but that's my best hypothesis at the moment. Nevertheless, what I'm saying to the real reductionist is, hang on, that doesn't mean that whilst we're alive we don't have a soul, because while we're alive, in some way that we don't understand, the physical generates the metaphysical. When the physical dies maybe the metaphysical gets switched off and doesn't live forever but who knows what we do know which is far more important is that while we're alive the metaphysical is there and there is a human
2: soul i'd like to just ask a clarifying uh, question if if i may here because previously it seemed to me that you were saying that you were subscribing to a, a metaphysically naturalistic materialistic worldview that there is nothing supernatural or non-physical that exists but now it seems you're, you're saying that um, what you actually think is that there is a, a material, physical universe that generates mm. the existence of non-physical, supernatural realities. So you're so you're not a naturalist. You're uh, you're a supernaturalist, but one who doesn't believe in God or an afterlife. Oh. Well, that it depends
1: right? what your use of the word supernatural Well, non- is. non-physical. Um, usually the word supernatural in Christian terms is meant to be a contradiction of what the natural physical process would be. In other words, Christ can walk on water and ascend oh, to heaven. Right, no, no, I, I'm not um, using it in the
2: philosophical using. sense of... of uh, not not yes. within the standard description of a metaphysically well, naturalistic I'm worldview. S- I'm suggesting that
1: um, the physical um, human... Um, generates a metaphysical of intellect, of emotion, and of spirituality. Um, I don't know how that operates, as we said at the beginning Mm. of the discussion, because neuroscience hasn't got us anywhere near there. I mean, neuroscience is uh, at the elemental position of cartography, roughly knowing where the continents of the world are, and that's all. Um, And and we just don't know. I mean, the human brain seems to understand everything except itself. There there are, of course, philosophers like Keith
0: Ward who would say, and Mm. it's precisely, and it will never give us a physical explanation because you can't get there philosophically from uh, a material to the immaterial aspects. And and that is precisely the arguments that they would give for the existence of God. Uh, You're saying, well, we haven't found out. we, We can't explain it at the moment. Others are saying actually there's your proof if you wanted proof of god that uh, that we do not live in a purely materialistic universe because these things are simply inex cannot cohere together the well, the, the, the existence of um these very this metaphysical yeah. <laughs> you know realm that you're talking yeah. about i mean there isn't that, that you that you've exactly outlined the fact that a physical realm giving re- rise to a non-physical realm is a contradiction in terms and so I don't well, I see why we should think that we will find an explanation eventually in, in
1: neuroscience uh, well I don't think it is a contradiction in terms necessarily and I don't think it proves God in the way you said it opens up a possible case for a, yeah. for a hypothesis of God sure it does open up a possible case for a hypothesis of God. Um, but there are so many other factors that argue against the existence of God that the alternative hypothesis that these are generated by the physical is a valid but hypothesis. But it's interesting that it the, 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 one, the one you've actually. brought up, which is the problem of evil,
0: kind of rests on, interestingly um, the, another thing that you also take for granted which is this idea of, of there being objective standards of right and wrong, justice, etc and that a just God wouldn't allow these things to happen but you can't get this objective standard as, as, as Peter pointed out earlier in the programme without having um, uh, you know, God in the first place to, to ground that objective standard of, of right and wrong Yes, I don't have an objective standard I fully admit that oh, So you,
1: sure. you are a relativist as far as morality then. Yes So well, i have my own convictions and i i would argue for those convictions for why, example why would you argue for them ah, but, but that's where the unknown is um and the God of the gaps who say there's an unknown here, let's posit God, well that's one way of doing it, but, but the humbler way I think and the, is to live in the uncertainty and to say actually I don't know, but I still ascribe to mercy, so where does mercy come from? I mean is mercy a Darwinian adaptation because it's for the survival of the fittest, is it a maladaptation because actually it's going to lead to us being wiped out if we're not uh, harsh enough with other people, um, is it from an external God, is it from a metaphysical in the universe we don't know where it's from or are, is it generated from within us I just don't know and I don't think any of us know but does it matter
2: if we wish to ascribe to mercy well I think it matters if we wish to ascribe to mercy being uh, an objective reality that ascribe to the idea that we ought to be merciful and um, Darwinian explanations of how come we feel or believe that we that we want to be merciful or that uh, grounded in perhaps being merciful has been advantageous to survival in the past or whatever or it being a maladaption or whatever. But I think issues about how come we we believe or feel or have maybe a tendency to act in certain ways, none of that scratches the actual question of but is it true that we really ought to act in this way. Well,
1: I can't see if we can put true and ought together, really, because one's an is statement and the other ought statement are very different uh, uh, point, very different issues. I'm prepared to argue for mercy, um, and I don't know where it comes from, but I think it leads to a more beautiful humanity. But but all of this is from your subjective point of view. To you it's more beautiful but to Uh, Stalin it isn't more beautiful Um, So so on what basis do you say Stalin ought to choose? So you know the human race can look at Stalin and they can look at a merciful um, existence Mm. and they can choose and if those who want to choose Stalin, good luck to them. Um, Those who want to choose mercy um, let's live together
2: (laughs) You remind me of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, lecture on humanism where he says uh, mankind is condemned to be free that we just have to choose Absolutely, but, but nothing that we choose actually fundamentally, yeah. in the end, objectively matters. Yeah, because the God believed doesn't necessarily generate mercy. Islam's God isn't as merciful as the Christian God. Uh, well, that's right, but that's that's going from a certain theology to uh, certain values that one might build a- out of that. Whereas, of course, the, I mean, the moral argument was going was going from a common recognition of values, and then asking how do we then explain them. Whether that God that is, that is the metaphysical explanation of the reality of objective values is a God who's revealed himself in any particular religious tradition, and if so, which one, that, that would be a whole secondary, uh, tertiary uh, question down the line. But to, simply to, to argue for for a kind of theism from the reality of, of objective values, um, I think that, that's a very... Um, significant step one uh, in this conversation
0: we, we're going to have to take a quick break again gents and uh, we'll, we'll wrap up our thoughts in a moment's time you're listening to Unbelievable as we ask can an atheist believe in meaning And um, Jeff Crocker has been giving uh, his view as an atheist, uh, former Christian of, of how he does think that, that, that as it were, the case for having meaning and value in our life and and how religion contributes to that on an atheistic framework. And uh, Peter S. Williams asking some of the questions today of Jeff on uh, whether that makes sense at an ultimate level. But um, your thoughts welcome as well. I'll give out the ways of doing that uh, in a short moment's time as we conclude our program in a moment's time here on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. Welcome back to Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon. Well, my ge- Christian guest uh, in the studio today, Peter S. Williams, joins me again next week. Um, uh, he's going to be talking about his new book, Understanding Jesus, and uh, he's g- going to be answering the questions of a few sceptics. Uh, we're going to have a Muslim guest who's going to be asking a question on Jesus, uh, an atheist and, and a Christian who just has a question on um, some uh, biblical aspects of Jesus. So it should be a good one next week if you want to tune back in for that, uh, Understanding Jesus us with my guest Peter S. Williams at the same time next week. Don't forget a little later on in this show we'll be getting some of your feedback to the last few weeks of programming so uh, stick around for that. Uh, We'll be uh, getting some of your views on the uh, William Lane Craig uh, show of last week when he took some of your questions. And um, by the way, uh, we've uh, tried to rectify the fact that the last 10 minutes of the podcast on that occasion was missing uh, of some of the feedback at the end of the show. So uh, if you want to re-download that show, you should find that the, uh, the missing audio is now there um, if you're interested in finding out what was said right at the end there. But uh, the, the main gist of the show, of course, was all there with uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, but uh, let's get back into today's show as we uh, conclude this question. Can an atheist believe in meaning? You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Jeff Crocker is a former Christian. His book, An Enlightened Philosophy, um, sort of talks about the way that he believes we can retain a strong conviction in the value of religion, even if we are an atheist and uh, uh, interpret it as a myth. Um, so can we believe in anything is the subtitle of Jeff's book. Uh, can an atheist believe in anything? Well, um, Peter S. Williams is a Christian philosopher who's done quite a bit of work in this area and um, has come essentially to the conclusion that on an atheistic framework, uh, nihilism is the ultimate outworking of that, that there is no ultimate existential meaning to life um, and that uh, anything that we do have, I suppose, Peter is, might be worth putting it, is, is illusory in some sense subjective subjective um let's finish off gentlemen in this last section just kind of just a statement really of of where you stand then as as we finish up the program there's been some really interesting toing and froing um start with you jeff what um do 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 you remain convinced i mean you you, you've spoken a lot about the fact you don't know where stuff comes from um, in as as an atheist, you don't know why there is a metaphysical realm which you apprehend um, and which I can imagine a lot of your atheist colleagues would disagree with you on that, that they'd say you, you've misunderstood what this is, perhaps. Um, but but you, you seem to say, at least for the time that a human being is alive, there is a non-physical metaphysical realm to them that um, <clears throat> uh, we, we need to have sort of things like religion and stories to be able to uh, create meaning. In, in in that sort of sp- spiritual space, um, has anything that uh, Peter said today made you reappraise that, or do you feel that that this this just is the way it is, uh, whether or not we we understand it?
1: Well, firstly, I think that the militant atheists do acknowledge a metaphysical dimension to human life because they themselves are trading in intellectual argument and ideas, so they are participating in. Um, a metaphysical element to being a human being. Um, I'm not really uh, intent on a combative argument to, um, although I'm happy for the debate, but I'm not combative towards Peter's position actually. I mean, my main thrust is that current secular society, which has found itself in the atheist agenda, really. Um, does need some grand narratives. It really does need to think about the virtues. It really does need to think about how it wants to live because physicalism leads us to a consumer society and ends up um, being rather reductionist of what the human potential really is. And therefore, I'm saying that if the atheist position will acknowledge the that it needs an account of the metaphysical, and if the religious uh, contribution to that, instead of being doctrine which I do criticise as being insignificant, emphasises the myth interpretation and meaning of its messages, then I think there is a huge synthesis to be explored. And I'm not coming, mm. I'm not coming from some, some exact position. No. I'm just saying that here is a synthesis for us to jointly explore. Uh, on that basis,
0: um, we we can get on better with each other if we have these meta-narratives, etc. But ultimately, there's no ultimate end in sight. There's, there's no kind of thing towards which we're progressing. You know, it, it really is just a case of making it up as we go along. And, and in, in that sense, because obviously on the Christian meta-narrative, you talk about meta-narratives, there is... A grand purpose, a grand design. God has a, a plan of salvation, redemption, renewal, and and all the rest of it that, that's involved in Christianity. To me, that might give someone more of a sense of ultimate meaning and purpose than than your one, which is really about grab whatever meta narrative you can, because well, it's it, at mean, the end of the day. <laughs> without that, we're kind of floating of... in a sea of existential nihilism. Um, well, you're mean... prioritizing my position pretty <laughs> Sorry, strongly I, there. <laughs>
1: and, uh... Uh, I don't think we are making it up as we go along. I think there is a grand debate about what the virtues are, which literature, including religious literature, explores, celebrates, outlines, and so on for us. And we should join in uh, that exploratory journey. Um, you can pejoratize it and make it up as you go along if you like. Um, but I think that trivializes great literature. And I think that when one looks at the Sermon on the Mount, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? The purpose is for humanity to be able to discover and live in a blessed life. And I think that blessedness is open to somebody who happens not to believe in an exogenous God, just as much as it is to somebody who does. Um, you claim that um, a belief in God brings this purpose to you, but I don't see the enunciation of that purpose, either in the created world where the purpose seems to be very mixed up, if there is any purpose at all, or indeed for humanity. I don't see that it brings purpose. The purpose is generated from within us. How do I wish to live? What kind of contribution do I wish to make? How do I want to relate to the other human beings um, around me in this society? Those are the purposes and uh, they're not... They're not forced on me by an outside agency. Um, They're generated from within. Now, you think they're forced on you by an outside agency. I think that understates who you are.
0: Hmm.
2: Peter. <laughs> well I've, I've found it a fascinating uh discussion and i i think I hope it's come across that there's lots of points of commonality oh, yes, between yes, us and yes. i i think i really empathize with with your um uh, struggle with or grasping with these these uh, concepts of meaning and purpose and so on um for me i think it's true to say that um on a metaphysically naturalistic world view you would have to say, as you did, that there is a distinction between facts, which are purely physical things, and values, yep. which which are just subjective choices or opinions that we make. Yep. Uh, I think the only um, rational explanation of there being uh, objective values, values that are facts but non, not physical facts – is to transcend a, a naturalistic worldview to say there is something that's non-physical in reality, and ultimately for me the best explanation of of, of these obligating, prescribing facts that are values uh, would have to be in a in a personal transcendent ground. Of obligation and moral prescription, um, which is which is God, uh, and I don't think you can have one without the other. But um, so, in a sense, I'm with those atheists like Sartre and Nietzsche who would say, "Look, no God, everything's just physical and so on." That means there are no real, objective values and purposes and meanings and so on. But on the other hand, um, I would much prefer that um, atheists out there and naturalists out there um, follow their instinct about the importance of values and, and meaning and purpose in life and let's go on and fight social injustice because that's something we really ought to do uh, than that they're um, consistent you know that philosophical level in in that sense i don't see how you square the circle but i much prefer that you um uh, tilt the balance in the way that you are than that you were um, going through life like frederick nietzsche <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you gentlemen both for uh, for being on the program with me today uh, thank you jeff for coming in Thanks, and um, if you want to find out more about jeff's book um it's uh, available now uh, you can order it from his website uh, which is an enlightened philosophy.com i think it is yeah. uh, and uh, we'll put the, p- the link of course to that with the unbelievable webpage, premier.org.uk slash unbelievable Um, And uh, Peter S. Williams returns next week. So we look forward to having you back again then, Peter. Uh, And if you'd like to comment on today's programme, why not get in touch? It's unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can also phone and leave me a voicemail message if you would like. 08456 and uh, select the option for Unbelievable, and I'll happily play out some of those next week as well. So uh, thank you for being with me today, gentlemen, and uh, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Well, we're going to be hearing some of your thoughts in just a moment's time as we look at some of your feedback to the past few weeks of programming.
1: Unbelievable with Justin Briley.
0: Well, uh, fascinating programme. Peter joins us again next week, as I said, and uh, he, of course, is involved. Uh, Damaris, one of the organisations he works for, are involved in bringing the William Lane Craig Reasonable Faith Tour to UK shores. And uh, Peter S. Williams will actually be joining Bill for uh, a rather late addition to the... uh, The schedule, but um, Bill uh, Craig will be debating the existence of God at the Cambridge Union, uh, the hallowed halls of the Cambridge Union, um, the oldest debating society, I think, in the world. And uh, they're going to be teaming up together in uh, a different type of debate format to the others that are on the bill, uh, where they'll be opposite two atheists, uh, Arif Ahmed. And Andrew Copson. So uh, that'll be interesting. Uh, So um, if you are a member of the Cambridge Union, you'll have the privilege of being able to attend that debate. But as I've said, there are three public debates open to anyone, um, whether you're a member of the Cambridge Union or not, not, that you can get to across the country, starting, of course, uh, in London, here where we broadcast from here at Premier Christian Radio. Uh, You can join us at Westminster Central Hall on Monday, the 17th of October, And that's when uh, Bill will be opposite Stephen Law, atheist philosopher, uh, who is standing in for Polly Toynbee, who pulled out uh, a month or two back. Um, So uh, we expect a great debate between them, though, and uh, that'll be a wonderful time uh, to really put the arguments to the test. That we were hearing from Bill last week on the programme when he joined me for a Q&A session from, with some of your listener questions. Uh, so premier.org.uk slash Craig to book in for that debate or indeed the debates going on in Manchester and Birmingham. Birmingham is with uh, atheist philosopher Peter Millikan. And in Manchester, uh, atheist scientist Peter Atkins. So uh, it should be a a great time had by all. Uh, Lectures also in Southampton. Southampton is um, on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Cambridge, you can get along to the lecture there if you're in the Cambridge area on um, uh, responding to Hawking and the grand design and and whether God can be seen as the cause of the universe. Uh, I'll be chairing that, dis- uh, that lecture so uh, it would be great to welcome you there as well uh, in Cambridge uh, look for the details of the tour at the website premier.org.uk slash Craig and just a, a final mention of that large um, that, that big apologetics day conference at Westminster Chapel on, Mon- um, on Saturday the 22nd of October featuring uh, Bill but also John Lennox, Gary Habermas and Peter J. Williams will be a great day I'm sure so uh, that's that's the place to go um, Now if you are um, Interested as well And you haven't yet got your hands on a copy Of it uh, Can I mention something else Unbelievable conference on DVD uh, has, has been landing on people's doormats And uh, I've got a whole Stash of them in the office here And uh, you could get your hands on one too Here's a little something we put together To advertise this uh, elsewhere In our schedule here on Premier Christian Radio
2: Get into the public discussion, because if we don't, those that say there is no God, God win win by by default. Over nine hours of teaching, five key
0: speakers, all on one DVD. Unbelievable, The Conference. Get honest answers to tough questions at premier.org.uk slash dvd. Oh, that's exciting, isn't it? Well done, Brad, who's um, in in charge of producing our commercials for us and uh, he's done a a great job on there. Sounds like the end of the world or something if you don't buy that DVD. But um, no, uh, great stuff. And uh, the voice, of course, you hear at the beginning of that is uh, John Lennox, who's one of the key contributors to the conference that we held back in May. So if you want to see, as it says, over nine hours of footage from that conference and the various speakers that were involved there, David Robertson, Jay Smith, David Instone Brewer, uh, Mark Rock and um, John Lennox uh, uh, and the various seminars that they held and the Q&A that followed do uh, get along to premier.org.uk/dvd. You can get hold of that DVD. Uh, own it. Uh, 3 discs worth of material there. Um speaking of David Instone Brewer who I just mentioned he's actually appearing tonight at Gunnersbury Baptist Church in a debate going on there from 7.30pm, doors at 7. Uh, if you want to get along to that, um, he's going to be debating uh, Kenneth Humphreys, who some may know as the author of a book called uh, uh, Jesus Never Existed and a website of the same name, a um, uh, uh, a kind of very hard-line sceptic when it comes to the reliability of Scripture. So you can expect the kind of debate they'll have as they look at the question, is the Bible historically reliable? Uh, so if you're interested and you've, you've got your evening free tonight, listening on Saturday today, um, why not get along there tonight? Gunnersbury Baptist Church, Wellesley Road, w 4 4 be in London. It uh, should be a really interesting debate. And uh, we might uh, be playing out some of the audio from that debate in uh, a few weeks' time. Um, Right, some of your feedback would be good to get to, wouldn't it? Uh, Let's go to um, mentioning the DVD. Thank you, Philip in Bridlington who wanted to say thanks for my copy of the conference DVD. Um, I've just worked my way through all the seminars, one of the benefits of not being in full-time employment at the moment. I'm sure the information contained will prove to be a great resource for me in the future, and I'll be revisiting the various seminars frequently. I particularly appreciated the input of David Robertson on how do I make the case for faith. David is a very engaging speaker, and I enjoyed his humour as well as his insight. And Jay Smith, on his thoughts of how as Christians we should approach Islam, I have to admit, I knew very little about Islam before watching the DVD, but I've now been encouraged to learn more. It was also nice to put faces to some of the speakers who have appeared on the unbelievable debates. Thank you also for the uh, additional CD I received. Not necessary, but it has been most gracefully received. Thank you very much, Philip. Glad you're enjoying that. Uh, If you've got hold of yours, do let me know how you're finding it. Um, uh, Now, last week uh, we had uh, William Lane Craig join me here and uh, he was taking some of the uh, listener questions that I'd asked you to submit, and many of you did, and we just got to a fraction of them, really. But a number of them were in regard to the Kalam cosmological argument, which is always one of the primary arguments Bill brings out in his debates against atheists. The idea that um, the, the fact that the universe is finite had a beginning in time and space, uh, well, that time and space had a beginning in the Big Bang, as it were, Uh, And the fact that uh, nothing comes into existence without a cause is evidence for the existence of God as the first cause of the universe. Uh, Justin Shiva uh, was one of the people whose question I asked, and he says, Craig's response to my question on time and intentional action was an interesting one. Craig doesn't believe that intentional actions require a temporal realm, which, of course, um, is important in the sense of if God intended to produce the universe does that make sense in the context of there not being any time before the big bang uh, but you say um he thinks that intentions and the actions that are a result of those intentions could possibly be simultaneously he asks us to think of a person dangling from a cliff hanging onto a tree root to avoid falling he claims that the intention to hang on to the root exists simultaneously with the action of grasping onto the root now i actually think craig is absolutely correct however i don't think it helps his case Uh, it seems that Craig is not making an important distinction here. Firstly, one kind of intentional action is something to the effect of I want to act, act to change something about the state of affairs. And another kind of intentional action is something to the effect of I want to maintain the current state of affairs. Now, that second kind of action could be properly understood as having the action and the desire as being simultaneous. But it seems that the creation of the universe was the First kind of intentional action, which does require a temporal realm as it needs chronological priority. So you felt that his answer didn't solve the problem that you were asking, Justin. Um, uh, Indeed, uh, the same thing from Rob. Rob. Uh, who is in uh, the Netherlands, I think. Um, he, his email is entitled Kalam Strawmen, and you've got a number of objections to uh, Craig's defence of the Kalam cosmological argument on the programme. But you also bring out a, a, a very similar um, thought to Justin sheba on, on his answer on the uh, intentionality and chronological priority and that kind of thing. Uh, you also uh, were not happy with it, how he answered whether um, the universe beginning to exist is the same as other things that we know of that begin to exist. Uh, You say the universe beginning to exist is completely different uh, from objects within the universe. Every beginning of an object that we know so far is the rearrangement of pre-existing material. There was no pre-existing material for the universe to be formed from. So since the manner in which objects begin to exist differs inherently from the way that the universe began to exist, there's no ground to consider the necessity of a cause equal. Um, if you want to revisit uh, some of the uh, sort of... These are quite technical comebacks on, on Bill Craig's um, contribution last week. Uh, I do encourage you if, you, if you didn't get it, to to go and listen to the programme where we, as it were, take it from the start. Uh, that's uh, available, of course, um, at the webpage premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. Um, uh, but uh, others who have emailed in, uh, quite a few emails responding to this. Um, Hung Wai Chi, who... Um, says, um, uh, he, uh, I asked a question on your behalf, Hung Wai Chi, and, and I'm sorry, your, your email seems to suggest that I didn't ask it quite in the way you wanted to. But, but you say in this email, you may think that Craig answered my question, um, and your question was essentially about whether the first premise of the Kalam argument that everything begins to exist has a cause is true, kind of in the same way that we just heard from Rob. Um, but he only answered the challenge of intentionality versus time. He avoided the issue of causation and time. I can understand you were limited by time due to the length of the program, but neither of the questions really challenged Craig, whilst my question actually challenges the very first premise of the Kalam argument. Now on another issue, which was um, uh, an objection to the uh, fine-tuning of the universe argument, uh, you say, I noted Craig failed to address the teleological question adequately. The challenge put to him was not that a helium universe may require fine-tuning, but that fine-tuning argument could be applied to any type of universe. I'm rather disappointed you didn't pick him up on that, as you're normally very astute on these things. Uh, this was um, because uh, there was an objection uh, from one um, emailer or a, a kind of question put, well, what about, um, you, you say our universe is fine-tuned to produce life, but wouldn't a universe full of helium also be fine-tuned to produce helium bill's answer as i recall was that well you simply don't have to have as fine tuned a universe to produce helium There uh, there's can be quite a lot of um variation in the initial constants of the universe for that type of a universe to exist so it, it simply isn't fine tuned in the way that we understand our universes um so i don't know it depends what, what distinction you're trying to draw there um uh, get back to me hung wai chi if i've, if I've mis- misunderstood the where you're coming from on that uh, thanks to others who have been getting in touch over different things as well. Um, just want to get to a couple of these. Lots of uh, new listeners who have been emailing in the last few weeks. Uh, Natalie says, uh, Writing to say how much I love the show. Discovered it a couple of months ago, but have been downloading all the podcasts to catch up. I think I've listened to around 100 of them in two months. You must be sick of me by now, Natalie. Uh, You say you especially love the Gorilla Christian episodes. David Robertson is great. Natalie, you say, I'm not a Christian or an atheist, but I find myself defending Christianity more and more. I've only recently started taking an interest in the question this year after watching a Richard Dawkins argument and wondering what the arguments were for the other side. I think it's great that Dawkins and co. have opened up a conversation about God and your radio show has continued these conversations. I wish more people my age were interested in discussing some of the big questions. I still have lots of questions but find myself more and more convinced that there is pretty sufficient evidence for the existence of God, even if I still have doubts over certain aspects of the Christian faith. Anyway, just wanted to let you know how great and important the show is for people like myself who are genuinely searching and open to the arguments of Christianity. Oh, and I also love the accent. Uh, Thank you very much, Natalie, who I think uh, you're emailing from Australia, I think. So um, thanks, very encouraging email. Kyle Lawrence, I'm a new Avid Listener. From Los Angeles, California. I read Daryl Bock's blog. And uh, he mentioned his appearance on your show. I've been downloading and listening like crazy ever since. Uh, One of my primary faith struggles throughout my life has been reconciling my doubts vis-a-vis the apparent extreme confidence of atheists. But hearing your shows and the well-reasoned responses by your guests has really helped to bolster my intellectual understanding of the validity of Christianity. You go on to suggest that uh, you'd love to see Dr. Hugh Ross on the program. I agree. We had him sort of uh, by phone at one time uh, last year, but uh, it'd be great to get him on again. Uh, and you also say have you checked out something called the jesus christ show over here in the states it's a traditional call-in show but the host answers questions as jesus christ i know it sounds a bit odd at first but he does a really terrific job of answering people's questions with very biblically sound responses and i found his answers to some of the toughest questions people have to be very helpful i don't know about that kyle does I don't like, no, I like that idea, the Jesus Christ show and someone answering as though they were Jesus Christ. I mean, that's quite a mantle to be taking upon yourself. Um, Certainly not one that I'd like to, but um, hmm, interested in your response. Have you listened to that show? If you're listening and you're in Kyle's area of the States, um, I wonder what your thoughts are on on that that approach to doing theology, apologetics and and discussion. Um, Thanks um, to all others who have been emailing me. Um, Keep them coming in. And uh, I look forward to reading out more in due course. Okay, that's all for today. Come back next time. We've got uh, another interesting show for you, uh, kind of in the guerrilla Christian format. Let me explain. You're unbelievable. Well, Peter S. Williams, who was with us today, returns uh, to talk about his new book, Understanding Jesus, looking at Jesus from a historical biblical theological and philosophical point of view and he's going to be taking some questions from some skeptical listeners to the show uh, so they'll be coming on the line and uh, asking those questions uh, a few of them uh, during the show so it should be a good time had by all at the same time next week hope you can join me for that uh, here on premier christian radio on saturday at two thirty pm or indeed online at premier.org.uk slash unbelievable until then have a great week